I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Janet Ellis, and this is Twice Upon a Time, where each week I invite a guest to come and chat with me about their favorite childhood book. They often bring along their own battered copy. This is a podcast to celebrate that magical book which cast a spell over us and often still has us in its thrall. Rachel Roddy, welcome to Twice Upon a Time. Now, Rachel is a food writer and a cookery book author whose weekly Guardian cookery column is not just a cookery column, it's a love letter to the food and lifestyle of Italy and particularly Rome, where she lives and where she's speaking from now. Her latest book, An A to Z of Pasta, is essential reading for cooks and will delight her many, many fans, of which I am one. And it should win even more awards, Rachel, than the ones you've got. It's a fabulous book. And you've chosen The the Tiger Who Came to Tea by Judith Carr. How old were you when you first encountered this book? Well, I've been trying to work it out with my mum and we think probably 1975 when I was three, because I was just looking. The book was first published, wasn't it, in 1968 and then became a paperback in 1973. But we can't quite be sure because it's a book that was my book. And then also had a younger brother who's two years younger than me and then a younger sister who's five years younger than me. And I, we don't even know whether another copy was bought during that time. But let, let's say 1975. I'm sitting here with my son's copy, actually, which is ripped, <laughs> very ripped. <laughs> he was quite violent, actually, with the tie who came to tea. But yeah, 1975. So I was three. Let's say loved, not ripped. Let's say loved. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. No, absolutely. And it's never been out of print. I presume then you had it read to you initially by by your mum? Yes. But I think I remember, it's one of the earliest books I remember reading or looking at. I mean, I don't know whether I do. I like to imagine that I looked at the tights. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting looking at Sophie's Harlequin tights now under the table, but I, I do have strong memories of looking at it and, and, and whether I was reading it to myself or I could understand what it was. And then I'm really sure that I read it, particularly to my younger sister. So it was a book I enjoyed very much, you know, myself and then enjoyed it again through my brother's eyes and then again through my sister's eyes and then again through my son's eyes recently. So it feels, and as an adult, I mean, it never stops giving me joy. I've sat and read it three times this morning. It's just delightful. What's that feeling that that you get when, when you pick it up? Where does it take you back to? Did you have a particular place in your house where you read that was special? You know, I don't, I don't remember. I rem- I can remember reading or looking at books in bed. It's funny, isn't it? I have much stronger memories of looking at books than I do of reading them. And even, you know, older books, you know, as I got older, 9, 10, 11, thinking about reading The, the Secret Garden, and but remembering the cover very well. So I remember being in under my duvet. I don't know where it takes me. It takes me, it ta- it takes me to a very um, particular place I did this morning. 
I, I, I mean, I feel, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I felt sort of joyful and then incredibly nostalgic and sad about lots of things looking at it again. But yeah, I do. I also remember reading to my brother and sister, but not in a particular place. But I particularly remember reading to or also reading at Rosie <laughs> because I was a big sister. And the one who had the power of knowing what the words meant, or so I thought. You, you might not be able to be specific about this, but what's what's the sadness of looking at it now? You know, I don't know why I'd even said sad. I just spoke, I mean, it's such a, it's funny, I had to call my mum, actually. I, I called my mum because just, just before I, I had this call and I wanted to just check as well um, something with her because I knew it would come up. Sophie's, of course, got a, a mum and you know, mum and her dad. So, you know, we know the story. She She's at home with her mum and a tiger comes round and eats everything in the house. And then dad comes home and there's nothing to eat. So the best book, better bit of the book for me is when, um, I think as much as the tiger is when uh, Sophie's parents put her coat on over her nightie and she goes to the cafe in her nightie and out for, you know, sausage and chips and ice cream. And, uh, there's that lovely picture, I and mean, I love all the pictures, but that picture of them walking in the dark, you can see her nighty. But um, I'm one of three children, but my mum was an only child. But actually my mum, when she was a little girl, her parents got divorced. So it's funny, I think of much more of Sophie being me, I think of it being my mum. And her mum in those lovely grey rib tights could be my, my granny Alice. But this sort of idea of, you know, a mum and a dad, and actually, you know, when I think of my mum being a little girl, one of the first things that comes to mind is that her mum and dad separated and so I don't know whether that's in there as well. Or maybe I was overthinking before talking to you. I mean, it's an incredibly joyful book to me. I was going to say the thing I loved most about it, as much as the tiger, which actually, when you're reading it, it makes total sense, doesn't it, that a tiger would come around to you. Incredibly sad when he never comes back. And, uh, but the nighty was the thing, going out for supper in a calf, that beautiful picture of Sophie and her mum and dad sitting at the cafe. And those two old ladies in the background with pink hats yeah it's lovely but that picture does make me think of of my mum and her parents yes there's a kind of um opening up isn't there when you get older and you realize that your parents were people too and then imagining them as children I agree is is quite poignant because you'll never know them like that and you can't really connect to that part of them either because that's not your relationship with your parents so that's lost I suppose it's it's a question of that loss isn't it loss a loss of something that you've never had in the first place there must there's probably a german word for that yeah yeah, yeah there probably is well it isn't it? it's also that you do know things about your parents when you're little don't you but it's interesting how that knowledge changes as you get older and then yourself become you know older and have children so yeah also what was interesting what's interesting about the, the, the pictures in the book is i'm it, it's uh so i was born in 1972 so was if I think I'm consciously reading it and looking at the book a lot in the 1970s, you know, 75, 76, 77, 78, I really remember the book being around all the time and thinking about how decor changed and actually looking at the book now, I see so much of things of it remind me of both my grandma's kitchens, very much my my mum's kitchen as well in the, in the 1970s and 80s. And I love the... Um, I'm having to flick through the pages, but I love the uh, the picture where the tiger's in the, what's he doing? He is, oh, he's swishing his tail. It's the one where Sophie's hugging him in the kitchen and you've got the sink with the onions above it and then the stove. I mean, with the old fashioned kettle, that reminds me of my grandma, Roddy, my paternal grandma and Alice too, the kitchen in the pub. But then that square or the angular cupboard with the glasses in was rather like something in our kitchen 
those wonderful blue and green bottles. I, I, the tomato sauce, you know, I just, I, it feels it's, it's so many kitchens all um, combined. And actually, the stoves lie in my kitchen in Rome. Maybe that was it. Maybe the clues were there all along. <laughs> and also there's, there's no sense of dread from either Sophie or her mother when the tiger arrives. It's that wonderful thing. It's so written from a child's viewpoint. I mean, Judith Carr wrote it for her daughter, Tacey. It came out of telling her the story. And that was the only story that Tacey eventually wanted her to tell. It, she used to say to her, talk the tiger, which meant, you know, tell the story again. But when you look at the pictures, there's nothing to indicate that either Sophie or her mother have any fear at all. It's, it's quite, it's practical magic. Yes, it is. Exactly. Yes, a, a welcome guest. I mean, I love that first because, of course, the tiger's enormous. I'm always shocked when I open the book and remembering how big the tiger is and actually quite how, I know he's smiling all the time, but how huge he is and, and tiger-like. And he's enormous coming in the door, but him po- poking around the door, I, yeah, it's lovely. I love that. It's, um, uh, but yeah, the sort of idea of welcoming this potentially dangerous wild animal so easily it's delightful his tail swishing everywhere I, the way she's affectionate to him as well something else that makes me think you know as I say I was one of three I had a brother and a sister but my little boy uh, is an only child and uh, we just got a dog actually a few years ago he said to me mom if you're not going to give me a, a brother or a sister you can give me a dog and I thought fair enough so he has a dog, but this is the, the only child welcoming this other animal into her life so so easily. And her mum, I, I love that. Well, it's quite specific anyway, because Judith Carr actually had two children. Um, Tacey has a, has a brother, Matthew, who's a, a very... In fact, Matthew Neal lives in Rome. And I'm very tempted to do that thing of, you know, you meet an American, you go, oh, do you know my cousin in Idaho? But I'd love the idea that eventually you and Matthew Neal might meet. <laughs> I like that idea too. Let's try and make that happen. <laughs> With the story, obviously, it's the end of the day. Yeah. And I've, I've heard Judith Carr talking about that moment where, you know, you have got through the day with a small child and you are at the moment when you are preparing tea and you are heading on that slope, wherever you think the slope goes, towards yeah. bedtime. And then the tiger arrives and absolutely everything has to revolve around the tiger because although he obviously can't speak, he's hungry and they start feeding him and he eats them out of house and home. And he not only drinks uh, all the water in the tap, and funnily enough, um, Judith Carr's publishers <coughs> initially said, oh, oh could, could she not drink all the water? <laughs> she fought <laughs> for him drinking all the water and all all daddy's beer so that when daddy comes home from work, they have to eat out. And as you say, they, they go straight away. In the 1970s, it was, I mean, Sophie going out with her parents was a huge treat. I'll have to ask my mum now, how often she went out with her mum and dad for sausage and chips and ice cream. I've, actually, I'm just distracted because the page has flipped over where the tiger is pouring the tea directly into his mouth, which is maybe my other favourite illustration. It's so all dad's beer as well. Wonderful. Let's all be more like the tiger. Eating all dad's everything. beer. <laughs> I know. I know. And I, I love the picture where he's sitting at the, the table. Um, let me hold it up. He's sitting at the table and his tail is curled round onto the table and he is he's sitting up quite politely but um there's a sense of this is going well at this point 
He may yeah. well just eat the stuff on the table and take his leave, you know, after a polite... In fact, initially, she wrote him with a hat on before she decided that tigers wouldn't wear hats. And I, you know, I said, after this picture, he might have tipped his hat and left. But of course, he, he goes on. There are several more pages when he does eat and drink absolutely everything. But again, it's the expression on everyone's faces. You know, the, the little girl who was modelled on Tacey is, is looking very satisfied with the way this unexpected day is going. And her mum is just looking up at him in a kind of, well, you know, it's nice to have visitors at this time of day. We wouldn't normally expect it. And when, when he does ring on the doorbell, she runs through a list of people it could possibly be and then dismisses them, you know, too late for the milkman, the butcher's boy doesn't come on this particular day. But she still opens the door and lets him in. Because um, you know that um, it, later on, because Judith Carr herself was a refugee from Germany, her, her parents had to flee, in fact, the day before... Hitler came to power. They left Germany. Um, her father was a writer and theatre critic, her mother a composer, and they left a large house and a comfortable life with nothing but their two children going first to Switzerland, then to Paris, then finally to London. But her sense of otherness is sort of dissipated in this because she she always, you know, when people later said to her, oh, are we, is it allegorical? Are we here talking about visitors or threats or, you know, the way a child reacts to, to incipient horror? And she's always said, no, it's a story about a tiger coming to tea that I told my child, her son, Matthew Neal. And he said, tiger who came to tea is a story that's invented as much by the listener as the teller. I thought, well, that's that's the best thing you can say about a children's book, isn't it? That your child actually gets to participate in the story, even though they may not understand all the words. Yeah, Lovely. yeah, absolutely. It's a story and it's the illustrations, isn't it? it you know, they are, it's absolutely an illustrated storybook that the, the, the illustrations were... Well, probably well, my main focus, you know, it's and um, yeah, it's um, absolutely yes. immersive, immersive and you get lost in them. Um, and I still do. I'm mostly lost in her, the, the detail, the tights, the, the look of the fabric, and, and, hugely engaging. And she was always really keen that the, the story and the illustrations did not repeat each other. So the illustrations would always move the story on because she, she said, you know, a child has already heard that bit. They don't need to see a picture of it. They've seen it already in their head. So the illustration is... Like the best musicals, the, the music always moves the story on rather than just telling you what you've already seen. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello. 
time. I'm on the page where the tiger's gone. And just before the tiger's gone out of the door and dad's come home. And she's that lovely picture of her in the bathroom. So her mum's pulling her nightie off about to get into a bath. And it reminded me of something, you know, you were saying before about this, this, this routine of having children and, and very repetitive. I found it quite intense when, you know, having a little boy every day that the, the, being I had one child, but the sort of conflict of giving him a nice steady routine, which seemed to be the thing that everyone was telling me was very important, which I already feel that I was failing at in Italy because the hours were slightly later here and my sister has three children. I kept, I used to tell myself if I had more, it would be easier. <laughs> I was, I told myself it was harder having just one child because, and so I did find that routine difficult. And it's interesting, isn't it? Thinking about the book and how within this set evening routine, which the mum seems to be dealing with beautifully. I don't think, I think I ever served tea out of a teapot. And then comes this massive interruption, which I find rather lovely and I enjoyed reading it to Luca. I'm not, I don't know what I'm saying here really, but I enjoyed that sort of massive interruption and, and disruption of that childhood bedtime routine that I found immensely hard work and never felt I really got right anyway. Listen, I've got three children. It's, it does not make it easier, but there's a sense somewhere possibly that her mother is looking forward to bedtime and, and the father coming home and that tiny bit of the day you, you sort of, I don't like to say get back, but you kind of do a bit, just get back when they're in bed if it works out that they're sleeping, of course. But I think I would have quite liked a tiger to have popped round when Luca was little and disturbed it. Yeah, there's a lot. What's lovely about the book is that there are you know, reading and reading and thinking about the sort of alternative readings about it and what the tiger symbolised and because the, the pictures are quite symbolic. And then, of course, the dad comes through the door, doesn't he? I mean, you know, dead traditional here, the sort of mum at home cooking and the dad arriving home. But but actually what's lovely about the book is that the main feeling is one of this fantastical thing that is incredibly ordinary. And the lovely thing about it is it does make you think of bigger things whether they be in relation to sort of Judith or yourself or my mum and my dad, I find it very full and at the same time, incredibly simple. I mean, I loved, 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 and I still do the pictures. I find them and that domestic detail, the towel hanging and the, the you know, the face cloth hanging on the edge of the bath and the duck on the floor. I mean, all the little, the details, this very comfortable domesticity and then this sort of wonderful, fantastical thing that bursts into that. I like that, that, that contrast. And it was, it was her her first book for children, and she worked really hard on the illustrations because um, you know she went to art school, but uh, and in fact she was supposed to be studying illustration, but she didn't much care for the classes, okay. so she kind of <laughs> bunked off illustration. So when it came to illustrating this, actually she she found it quite tricky, and of course you know she said later with with the arrival of the internet, how fantastic that you could probably find a, a tiger in all sorts of poses. But she went almost daily to London Zoo at one point and just watched tigers and really struggled and also struggled because she was initially working in watercolours and found they didn't work and they just weren't enough. And then a, an artist friend recommended waterproof coloured inks and they had exactly the right intensity because the illustrations have an almost lit quality, don't they? They're, they're very strikingly vivid but I, I love the fact that it, it you know, it although obviously telling a story and illustrating a story looks as if it came naturally to Judith Carr, and of course all her stories afterwards, particularly those about Mog, seemed to flow. And she worked up until her death in her mid nineties daily. 
But this was her first struggle, her first artistic struggle to make this book work. And she just then gave it to her husband's publisher to have a look at, not really knowing whether it would be anything at all. Because when her children were very small, she didn't work. But obviously, you know, she came from a background where her mother had worked until she was forced not to. And there's nothing to suggest really in the book that the mother hasn't been hard at it in front of her. Well, in those days, the paper and pen. I just think that that lovely detail of the fact that the illustrations were something she really had to work at. And yet for us, they're immediately connecting. Yeah, yeah. No, it's lovely. Well, I love both, two of those details. I love the fact she went and observed tigers because he's an incredibly wonderful, handsome tiger, isn't he? With, with that, And then I wrote that down, more rubbing out than drawing. I mean, as somebody who re- wrestles, wrestles with writing and really feel sometimes that I do more cancelling or deleting than than writing words down. I find that incredibly reassuring. And I like that as well. You know, someone said, you know, it's, it's you know, you're, I enjoy reading your writing. It seems, it, you know, it flows. It seems so effortless, but I know it isn't. And I, and I, you know, it, 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 it isn't. I mean, writing for me is, I must feel I'm actually on the floor wrestling physically with these words. I don't think I've ever felt it more than doing this recent pasta book because there was so much to wrestle with. So, you know, it was just it, this enormous tiger of, 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 of information. And I had to, I literally had to wrestle and then you find the words. So I love that idea with Judith. Also, they're lovely, aren't they? Because the, the drawings are, 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 are irregular somehow. You can see that they've all been done individually. I think they're exquisite. He is a marvellous tiger. When you see the roughs, you can see him taking shape, literally taking shape. You know, he's, he changes in scale. During some of the earlier drawings, he's much smaller. And then then he becomes such a dominant feature, such a dominant feature. And I can't, can't really remember. I don't, I don't think tigers are that big, are they, in, in real life? They, they aren't at all. I mean, they're not. I mean, he's, no. he's, he is, you know, he is like <laughs> an enormous, huge. he is huge. I mean, there, is, there are things to read in the book, aren't there? I mean, I don't want to sort of overanalyze the book in that way. And I don't think you have to, but I think... It, 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 the sort of size of it is wonderful and does come to represent. You think about when you're small, how when you think about things that are, I don't know, frightening or, or disproportionate. I used to get very, very frightened of things in books, um, things on television as well, you know, that I'd catch sight of. But I would I would get terribly afraid that there were things under the bed and they could they could have be anything. It could have been, a you know, a Dalek of Doctor Who or or a fragment of something I'd seen on the t- telly late that my parents were watching, or something I'd glanced over my dad's shoulder in the newspaper. I remember once the thinking that our neighbours down our road had a very big dog. And I, at one point, for a, quite a few weeks, was preoccupied that this dog was under my bed. I mean, and it was much bigger. So it is, it is funny how these, I don't know quite how this links up with this, but these, you know, these terrifying huge things. It's interesting that she she made this huge, terrifying creature so you know, welcome and wonderful. And actually at the end, this great sadness that he never comes back. I find that last picture of him saying goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. Really moving. Yes, isn't it funny? This is the the penultimate page of the book, just after they'd been out for their lovely sausages, chips and ice cream. And uh, it reads, in the morning, Sophie and her mummy went shopping and they bought lots more things to eat. And they also bought a very big tin of tiger food in case the tiger should come to tea again. But he never did. And the trumpet he's playing plays goodbye, 
goodbye, goodbye, getting ever smaller. I have a Sophie and it's a Sophie that I read to um, first. She's my eldest. And this book, obviously having a child called Sophie in it was particularly special for her too. But I'm looking at it now and I, I like I said, the, the thing I feel about it, looking at it, remembering reading it to Sophie is a place of safety, an absolute place of safety. So I'm really struck by what you say about books and how they could be scary too. I, I remember I had a an edition of Peer Gint with a particular illustration of the Hall of the Mountain King that I had to turn over really quickly not to see it, not to see that picture. And the power of the image for a child must be really striking because everything comes at you fresh. You know, when you're when you're three, you're often seeing things for the first time. So the way you process it must be really, really important. So if you saw the neighbor's dog in passing and it seemed to be curling its lip, you would only carry that picture of it because you wouldn't know much about many other dogs at that point. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, it, absolutely. I'm dipping into something very psychological here, but I'm trying to make sense of the fact that Sophie in the book and her mum are not frightened it feels safe to have this over large hungry stranger in the house when it goes against everything you think you tell children about the world which is that it's potentially dangerous for them too high too sharp too unpredictable and yet not always yeah she not only makes this possibly terrifying thing um because tigers are terrifying and this is a huge large very real looking tiger yeah not only welcome but also missed it's lovely. And I think, um, yeah, I wonder if that was something, I mean, the same as you, I, we had shock-headed Peter, the book of poems and all those, lots of those pictures used to really um, upset me. I used to, I used to have to hide books too, or take them in, in my brother and sister's bedroom. But I still have that. I mean, I still, there's things I get ever so sort of superstitious about things and have to um, around books, this is very pretentious. I mean, there's, when I sit at my desk writing, I've someone's almost got my hands on several books as if somehow by putting my hand on, I don't know, MFK Fisher, that I'm somehow going to channel her in the books. But there's also other books I can't have around. I mean, as I say, this book, the, the reason I chose it today, although there would have been lots of books I'd like to have talked about, was because it was the most present. And as I say, it remains now. I'd completely forgotten when we were talking about doing this and, and getting a copy um, I'm so preoccupied with getting my childhood copies or at least one from my parents' house, which are now, of course, read by a whole new set of grandchildren. I completely forgot that I had the copy that I bought for Luca. And my mum's reminding me as well that the most recent copy she bought has actually has a tiger, <laughs> a real little tiger. Oh, a furry. <laughs> a a furry. Yeah, there's, there's quite a lot of merchandise. Yes. There is quite a lot of merchandise associated, is there not? But it's very, luckily, very endearing. Um I'm struck, though, by this. This will sound like a clunky parallel. But nevertheless, Judith Carr came to the UK not speaking English and was, I mean, just excited to be here, to be safe, she thought. I mean, they actually lived in Bloomsbury to start with and were almost bombed out of their house. They had to leave it. But, you know, as a child, obviously her parents, despite the catastrophic chaos and threat they'd left, managed to create something safe. And then I'm absolutely fascinated by your bravery 
in going to Italy without speaking the language. It's nice to be thought of that it was brave. I mean, it was it was 16 and a half years ago now that I, I left England and came to, came to Rome. I suppose it was just more than being brave. I, it was just a big relief because I was at a point in my life when lots of things felt like they weren't working. And I was in a position where I, I had a bit of money which you know allowed me not very much but I had enough to to mean that I could then make this very impulsive decision and just go somewhere else. I really spoke no Italian at all, just a few words, and I enjoyed that. I really liked that and uh and found and then had been travelling about 3 months and came to Rome and decided that I would go to language school. And I just felt I was awful at languages. I I'd never been good at them at school. I, I felt that I'd never gathered more than just a few words of French or or German, was always frustrated by that. And so it basically in my 30s had just decided long before that I would never learn another language. So going to school was very, very satisfying. And going back to language school felt quite brave. I was quite frightened because I really felt that I had no ability. And I, you know, I did level one. There was various levels of this Italian school and I did level one three times. And the third time I signed up for it, the head of the school who I'd never met before called me into her office and said very nicely, Rachel, you, you know, you can, you could do level two or three, you know, you're more than ready. And I said, no, no, I can't. I still, I still don't know how to speak Italian. And she said, I think maybe you're ready to go to level two now. And so I, I had to be, you know, so I had someone insist. This was a school, a private language school that I was paying for. And I still thought that I needed to stay in level one learning my verbs. And, but that was a very satisfying. And so that maybe felt bravest learning. Although learning Italian, it was interesting, had a whole new set of frustrations because having very few words and travelling around, which was a lovely privileged thing to do for a while, was actually learning a language and settling in Rome. And then I got a job that, that, that felt like harder work. So maybe that felt a bit braver, um, learning a language, even though I still find myself stuck in, I'm going back to school, actually. You can hear me stuttering over it. I still like, you know, Italian, the language still, it's still a constant frustration for me, my, my Italian, but in a very good way. I like that. And I've just started writing in Italian. And as I say, I'm about to go back to school again, 16 and a half years after being here. So it's a good challenge. So maybe that feels the bravest thing I do. <laughs> Was there something refreshing about arriving somewhere without your history too? Very. Nobody knows you when you arrive. Very. Yeah, very. I, I, I really like that. And I... I mean, I'm so... Gosh, I'm more aware ever now than making myself sound like the sort of cliches. But when I came to Rome and I moved to this part of Rome, so I'm still in the same part of Rome that I came to 16 and a half years ago, this part of Rome called Testaccio... And it is a very geographically contained part of Rome. The, the, the curve of the river, it does look like a big piece of cheese, these two cut sides in the river. And Testaccio is, it does have a, a villagey feel to it. Rome is a sort of constellation of little villages within this bigger city, even though Rome itself never feels particularly big. So I would say I felt local here after about four hours. I'd been back in the same bar twice and I thought, right, I'm a- I'm a local, which you could argue could happen anywhere. I mean, I, I've always been quite good at making myself feel local wherever I was in London or wherever, but it felt particularly the case here. And so I felt local, I felt comfortable, but I was completely unknown. So I really, that was the, I think the thing that kept me here. And I'm, yes, I'm still here in the same apartment block that I've been in for 16 and a half years and 
still feel there's always there's always a sense of being a, a straniero, a stranger, but I feel incredibly at home here. But there's still a sense of anonymity and language, of course, presents a constant barrier. Do you slightly resent when you have to give a little bit more information about yourself to people? Was it was it quite nice the moment when people didn't know and you could absolutely give information as and when it's required? I was having to think about that. I, I suppose I was starting again, wasn't I? I was in a new city where nobody knew me and I was doing different things. I was working as a waitress and working as a teacher and I was wanting to write. So I, having come from a place which I, I just, you know, things had not felt very satisfying or very good. The move and working as teaching and waitressing, which I really enjoyed, I felt like this full immersion. I was working in a restaurant, so noisy, tiring. The same with teaching, thinking about somebody else. I It, it was starting anew, so I, di- I did like the idea of telling people I was a different person, wasn't I? Being the sort of new person I was and also not not talking about certain things. I, you know, I'd been, a, I'd been a, an actress or not been an actress before I moved to Italy. You know, I didn't have to talk about not being an actress or not working. I was suddenly talking about working and yeah, I mean, it was, it, I look back, it, it was, it was a, it was, you know, it was, it wasn't a decision so much to move to Italy. It was a, it was, it was an occurrence. It happened, but it was the, the you know, a very, a very good one. I'm very happy that I made that move 16 and a half years ago. And I really wanted to write. I didn't know I wanted to write about food, although food was always there. But moving to Italy allowed me to start writing. So that will always be a good thing. And does being an actress tug at your sleeve at all? No. Sometimes I will have more feelings. I was talking to a friend of mine who's an actor the other day and they were describing waiting in the wings to go on stage. And Vincenzo's also a musician, my partner. But And I, and I did have a moment. But no, because I just love watching wonderful actors. So no, I, I don't think it does. And I don't think I'd probably be writing if it wasn't for drama school. Three years at the drama centre was, I, I think, where I became a writer, probably. When you're a young actor, you don't want to be told that, you know, you won't be an actor. But uh, that you, you'll become. You, I remember we had this, you know, the head of the school, Christopher Fettis, saying, you know, you, 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 lots of you won't become actors, and the sort of horror at the idea that we wouldn't be the most successful, that we wouldn't have, you know, a season at the National Theatre and five episodes of The Bill. But actually, he was right, and we did turn out to do other things. There is something very, very lovely about a food writer choosing a book that is specifically centred around food and tea. Yeah, yes. I mean... Did it influence your choice? I mean, it, it, it must have done. It, it, was, it must have done. I mean, it was the first book that, 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 that came to mind. And, um, and I did. Yes, I do. I love that. I love the illustrations of food. And, and, you know, food's always been in everything I've written for good and bad. And as I say, the, the, you know, the, 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 the sort of associations with my mum and some quite sad stories that I had heard from her. And she won't mind me sharing this, but, that you know, it, it, was, it was all there. It, it, you know, I find it very, the illustration is very moving when I think about them, as you say, when I think about them sort of in relationship to, to my mum, because we've talked a lot about, you know, the things she ate when she was a little girl you know, particularly when her parents got divorced. And then, of course, the things my mum gave us, you know, and all that's in there too, which makes it even more moving. I do, yeah, I find the illustrations of the food very, uh, very wonderful. 
I just love the fact that you you write about the food you want to eat. You know, it's on the plate and you can smell it. It's not, it's, there's nothing uh, just antiseptic about it. There's nothing just, just the method about it. It is actually the alchemy of the raw to the cooked to the pleasure it gives, which is just in every, every bit you write. It's fantastic. Oh, thank you. That's such a lovely thing to hear. I, well, I enjoy writing about food. You know, I feel very lucky, particularly in The Guardian, where I, you know, I get 800 words to talk, not just about the recipe, but all the, all the things around it. I think when I first came to Rome and I started writing it, and, you know, was, was looking and had all these things, I was keeping notebooks, you know, and you, especially the history and the geography. And it felt like it was a good way to understand where I was and also understand where I'd come from. I, I wrote, you know, I was writing about Roman food, but also almost immediately was writing about English food because Roman food makes me think so much of Northern English food and the Northern English food of my grandparents. And, and so it was a way of linking all that up. And, and I continue to do that. I mean, inspired by people like Nigel Slater, but also, you know, other writers who wove, Jane Griggs and I'm thinking of particularly, who wove together history and geography and domesticity as well, all those things together and all anything, and then brought it into an article. And I love that. And, you know, I know that having looked at the tiger who came to tea and, and those pictures and the illustration of, I'm sure that must be tomato sauce on the, on the counter, that red bowl. You know, this will be woven in two, isn't it? It's a way of food writing is such a good vessel in which to put lots of things. And so I feel very lucky to do it and, and to be doing it for lots of people who also like cooking and eating. Um, you know, I've, I've got a chicken in the oven. I've got Nigella's chicken. Oh. <laughs> Can I just go and take it out? I've got to take, wait, one second. Yeah, we can. Oh my god! Of course, it's one o'clock, isn't it? My god, it's it's totally lunchtime. I think it's perfect. A podcast was just the right time to make Nigella's roast chicken with orzo pasta inside. So we have it. So you've been perfect timing for my for my cooking my lunch. Thank you so much, Rachel. What an absolute treat! Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Twice Upon a Time with me, Janet Ellis. My guest was Rachel Roddy. The producer is Caroline Raphael. Recording and post-production by John Wakefield and Diggory Waite. All the titles mentioned are on the podcast show page. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Twice Upon a Pod for pictures of our guests and their brilliant books. And if you like the show, do recommend to a friend or leave us a review. The executive producer is Claire Broughton, and Twice Upon a Time is a hat-trick podcast. When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/style for free shipping and 365-day returns.